Welcome to another episode of the Data Chaos Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Wells. Today, we're venturing into a captivating story of resilience, innovation, and technological prowess with our special guest, Sergio Leone, a software engineer with a fascinating 17-year journey. From his early beginnings in Cuba, Sergio takes us through his impressive trajectory that has seen him transition from building desktop applications in college to spearheading innovations in AI. Join us as we delve into the inspiring story of, I'm going to get this wrong, but I'm going for it, Kehai Pahoy, a mobile app startup in Cuba that surmounted daunting challenges to revolutionize content distribution. Discover the vast and limitless world of AI through Sergio's unique lens as we discuss his ingenious idea for enhancing AI efficiency through feature selection in high-dimensional vector space. From software engineering anecdotes to engaging tech discussions, we bring you a conversation that not only resonates with tech enthusiasts, but also anyone passionate about innovation and growth. So sit back, grab your favorite beverage, and get ready to dive deep into an intriguing narrative of code, creativity, and Cuban roots, all here in this engaging episode. Let's get started. All right, Serge, welcome to the Data Chaos Podcast, man. I appreciate you joining me today. I'm super happy to be here. I've been a longtime listener of the podcast, learned a lot from, from listening to you and, and the people you've had here, so it's an honor. And see, this is great. You're the first one to come on and say you're a longtime listener. That makes me so happy. You know, I think it's like 15, 16 episodes in. I have no idea if I have long-term listeners. So if I've got one and you're that one, that's awesome. I appreciate it. I've, I've been here since the beginning. I look, I look uh, for the podcast every week. So, yeah. Well, I'm not sure I'm at weekly yet. You know, I'm trying to do it every other week, a couple times a month. Maybe I do my bits here and there. But, you know, maybe I'll mm. ramp up a little more production as we're starting to release more stuff inside of Propel and have more things to talk about. But with all the AI stuff, there's always a lot of kind of cool things I'm playing around with. So maybe I'll, I'll put that out there. But before we jump into the deeper tech, tell me who, tell the audience, who is Serge and, and how did we get here? <laughs> okay, Serge, uh, I was born and raised in Cuba, Havana, Cuba. And I moved to Miami when I was about to turn 26. So that means that I went to college there and I started my career there. But I've been a software engineer for 17 years. I started out in college. And this is funny. The first thing that I ever built was a like a desktop application with Visual Basic that would let people browse, read, and listen to Avril Lavigne songs. Avril like, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was... It was big. Uh, like, she was big. It was a like yeah. Skater Boy uh, record uh, yep. back in, I'm dating myself, but like 2005, 2006. So but you're not dating yourself that it. much. Because if you said, you know, you, you said visual basic, I would date myself by saying like the early stuff I wrote in was just basic. <laughs> there was no well, visual yet. <laughs> yeah. This was visual basic six. Yeah. .NET was out, but I hadn't discovered it yet. It had been out for like three years. So Visual Basic, uh, actually Visual Basic for applications, like Excel add-ons and, and Microsoft Access add-ons was the first uh, encounter that I had with software uh, after being a nerd my entire childhood. But in high school, we got this class that would teach us, you know, uh, basic computer software engineering, and I was hooked. 
And so that was the first thing that I built. I went to college. Like it, it hooked me in a way where I was undecided whether to go and, and study computer science or engineering. I ended up studying electrical engineering and I graduated electrical engineering, but I did a bunch of creative, creative stuff with my curriculum. So I ended up putting a lot of computer science into it. I think that that was a big, like a good decision. Uh, I didn't know better. I just picked one because it was equally hard to get into either of those schools. But looking back, going to an electrical engineering uh, curriculum and then adding software, uh, like computer science on top, made made it easier for me to kind of have a, a, a leg in, in both worlds. It would have been harder if I had gone to computer science and then wanted to add uh, electrical engineering stuff to it. Or maybe not harder, but I wouldn't have gotten as deep into it. And it informs everything that I say, that I do today, that electrical engineering background and um, digital design and information theory. I, I wouldn't have those skills had I not taken that route. So in college, you were doing I, things like DSP and, and everything else like that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So radar, um, computer networking, uh, wireless communications, DSP, image processing, all of it. And then in my extracurriculars, which is what I did to earn the privilege of taking a bunch of the radio communication stuff out of my curriculum, then I did distributed data networking, uh, databases, ETL. I have a, I have a story for you uh, about MongoDB and big data. I did a lot of that, but we also did a lot of rapid application development. Uh, so writing up a schema in a SQL database and then introspecting that schema and using that to generate data access layers, business logic, like broad business logic, but also web UIs. Like at that time, it was web forms, ASP.NET web forms. Then it was MVC. Then it was um, Knockout, Backbone, and Angular. And then I've kept doing that with every new technology that I've taken. So I still do that today. Uh, it's, I, I'm not using SQL these days, but I still code up a schema and then generate code out of it. And it's, it's great in, in helping us deliver fast. GraphQL, like at some point I learned about GraphQL and I again got hooked. I still use GraphQL today. It was, it was a good surprise seeing that Propel uses GraphQL in the back end. That strong yeah. schema-oriented uh, description is great for rapid application development. Yeah, it's definitely a little um, story there with Propel and, and, and GraphQL. Um, you know, we graduated out of Twilio where everything was, was REST-based. Um, all your communication APIs, every single API there was REST. We tried to break GraphQL in and that just was a no-go. And we came over here and started <laughs> Propel. We, in, the, in the early days, we actually supported both. And oh, um, wow. myself and, and my two co-founders, we sat down, we started having this discussion like, why are we doing this? Like, we're, we're small, we got it, we're scrappy. Why are we going to support both? Let's just go all in on GraphQL. And, and we ripped out the rest and, and we've never looked back and have been super happy about it uh, for all the reasons you just said. And so I I'm, have no I'm desire to go back. Really happy. I'm really happy that that was the decision you made because I've seen people face that decision and make the opposite one. And I, I it definitely, I love the way that GraphQL helps you like know what's in the API, but also navigate it. And 
and like get complex data back in one round trip, that's a big, that's a big, uh, a biggie for me. Yeah, I mean, being able to inject filters in there feels very yep. SQL-like, and it and it I feel like it lends itself to data and data manipulation very, very mm-hmm. well. It's more natural, whereas REST just wouldn't. I don't know. I'd be doing strange stuff in posting JSON or on the query string. I don't know. That doesn't. Yeah, on the path. I don't oh, know. In a in a past life, I've actually used O data to add like that joining like that specific layer on top of REST APIs or REST kind of REST APIs by adding old data to a REST provider that would kind of give us what GraphQL lets you do, which is I want these fields from this object and then I want you to join it to that other object. And then you end up with a like a URL for a request that is super long because you're encoding the query in it. Yeah. Ugh. Like it would be the equivalent yeah. of running GraphQL queries using get instead of post. Yeah, right? no, no, nobody does that. No, <laughs> no, that that doesn't. No, that doesn't. That's like one of those things that just needed to go away, right? Like those little specifications they kind of come out, they bolt it on. It's like shit. We don't have anything else. Let's come up with something. And and I'm glad. It, I'm glad a lot of that stuff didn't stick, and we've now evolved into something cleaner, something nicer. Um, and that and all the reasons you said, I totally agree with the GraphQL, and we use it for everything. It's beautiful. So that was that was my like my route through college. As I was in the last year of the program, which is a five year program, uh, we were graduating. I started learning Android, and with uh, three other people from uh, from my three from my two from my year, and another one was a bit younger. We started up this uh, mobile app startup. We called it Ki Paoi, which is like Cuban slang for what's going on or you know, it was a uh, like an event listing platform. Internet access was not super great. We built a content distribution network that we use email attachments uh, to send data, like getting telemetry from the app, but also distributing content updates. That was a trip via email. Yes. Be- yeah. Okay. There's a yeah. It's a reliable <laughs> transport. I mean, there. That's a reliable. It it's is. a well-known, it's understood protocol, and, and okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the reason was uh, there was no mobile data at that at the time, like 20, 2005. There was no mobile data service in Cuba, uh, but a lot of people had Wi-Fi and email service either at their workplace or at a university or at a school. So we looked at that, and what we did is we spun up a an email server that would listen for incoming messages with a specific email. Uh, format. Uh, I'm sorry, subject format. Mm-hmm. We would use the subject format as command line arguments. So we'd take that, that would run a process, it would package a SQLite database. We tried using protocol buffers at the time, but we ended up using SQLite. Uh, we would package a SQLite file with the information that that user was interested in, and we would send it as an attachment to them. And then they had a we had a process running in the background in the app that would connect via IMAP or POP to their inbox. It would download the file and it would load it. It would uncompress it and it would read that SQL file and merge the contents from that SQL file to the on-device uh, SQL database. Like, a round trip, like <laughs> yeah. hellish round trip, <laughs> but it worked. Uh, we got we got up to. In a few months, we got out to 8,000 monthly active users. We started generating some revenue 
from people wanting to have their events be featured. We built a custom uh, version of the app for like the International Book Fair of Havana. And we used it as the place where people would go and find where things happening at which location within the premises of the event, uh, like a listing of events happening and people would interact with it, save, and then we would generate some data and send it back to the organizers of the event. Uh, so that was cool. And were there, at the a, lot same of, time, were there a lot of folks building, I, were there a lot of folks building software companies on Cuba? Yes. Were there? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Most of the people who went to college with me mm-hmm. and the people who went to high school with me ended up going to uh, computer science or uh, other engineering. Most of them are not in Cuba anymore. So a lot of them are in the US. Some of them are in Spain. A lot of them have started companies. A lot of them were already building software back then. That's amazing. Yeah. Like we were I've, definitely a pioneer. Not the first ones, but one of the first ones to do something like that uh, over there. And like it was it was interesting enough that we got invited over here. We did a like a little trip to DC. This was under the Obama administration. Did a little trip to DC, uh, the Bali, uh, New York. We like the guys at Netflix were awesome to us. They gave us a bunch of resources also at Facebook and Google, Yelp at the time, State Department as well. What years was this? What years did you come make that uh, this trip? Was, this was 2016. I think there's a, a couple of posts about it still in, in my LinkedIn. The, it coincided with the Global Entrepreneurship Summit at, at Stanford. Uh, so we got an, I got invited to that as well. Um, it was awesome. It was 11 of us uh, from Cuba who were building uh, businesses. And at some, at a point in the uh, in the keynote opening keynote, Obama was doing the keynote, and he stood up and he said, "Let's welcome all these eleven people who are here from Cuba and building businesses." Man, that felt great. It was a it was a huge uh, place, and just people were clapping because at, at that point it felt like finally Cuba is producing stuff that can be used outside of Cuba. It had been like a wall garden for so long. A lot of amazing talent is just going to waste. So I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad that that has changed. I was definitely one of those. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I, I had no idea. And I'm like, glad, I, you know, on this thing, I always learn something new. And that's, that's completely badass that, you know, there you are building companies, building software companies at that time you know, kind of hacking your way through, doing what you've got to do to, to get it done and working. But that is exactly what it was. Yeah, yes. but you did. I mean, 8,000 MAU is, is pretty badass. I mean, that's, yep. uh, you know, you're starting to gain some traction. People are using it. And and then you come, then you yep. come to the States and got to. Yeah. So I got accepted to a business management course at FIU. Uh, it was a, like a summer course, uh, like an intensive type of thing. It connected FIU, me that's, with a bunch uh, Florida, of Florida International University, right? Florida International University. Yes. And it, it created a bunch of connections for me. I already had a network of people here, uh, people that I had gone to, to college with or people that were my boss at the university. So during college, I, I was a, a teacher's assistant for the last three years of the career uh, of my, um, my program. And then I stayed there for two years and I would teach software engineering, so like computer uh, programming 101, 102, 103. Uh, to electrical engineering students. 
Um, so I what, had a, I had a big network. What languages were you having to teach the uh, the double E majors? Okay, so there's a there were a few different languages in my specialty, which is telecom, is electronics and and telecom. We taught like the basic courses. We taught C sharp and JavaScript. Okay, that was not the norm. That was only my specialty did that. All the other specialties in the uh, in in that school would teach C, C plus plus, and Java. Yeah. that was that was a thing back then. Well, the, the telecom science school would teach C sharp. Yeah, I was going to say. Well, I mean, even in the telecoms back then, I mean, that's not even that long ago. I mean, C, C plus plus was still very very prevalent yeah. and and being utilized. So mm -hmm. I could I could see the need to use it, but I I I kind of like the fact that you would. Hey, let's modernize this a little bit. Let's give them some skills that are going to appear probably be a little more directly applicable to the market and what they can can be very productive at pretty quickly. Yeah. In in later years, there's a there was a I think like two or three other classes that dealt with more specific stuff. So we would use C for network simulation. Uh, we would use C and or MATLAB for uh, DSP. Um, and then for uh, networking three, which was data center networking, uh, some half of the students would get Python because software-defined networking was really becoming the thing. And a lot of the uh, control plane open source software that was being used at the university, that was being researched at the university and all over the world was written in Python. So Python for some people, uh, C++ and MATLAB for the people who were not doing uh, data networking, that were doing uh, radio antenna design and that type of stuff. Um, I stuck to C chart though. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, as I say, if you're, if you're, then, so say, if you're yeah, doing JavaScript DSP, when we started building UI. Yeah, I mean, if you're doing DSP and, and chip design or, or signal processing, anything else like that, I mean, you're, you're pretty much living in MATLAB for, for yeah. quite a bit yes. of your career. Oh, and uh, VHDL and uh, Verilog, Verilog or yeah. FPGA design. That too. I've got a, a little, a little short. Well, not not too short. A, a small stint in the background of digital communications. And uh, one of my first jobs, I was working for a company called Hughes Space Communications, and the the program I worked on was called Millstar. It was a global communication satellite for the military, and I worked in basically in the system engineering group, uh, which was all the folks you know, kind of dealing with the full functionality of the, the spacecraft themselves. I got to spend a lot of time on the telemetry side Ooh, of things. Yeah, yeah. I got to see some crazy double PhD guys do stuff where they spend all day in MATLAB. <laughs> Just, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a very interesting kind of like, you know, first, uh, first job in college, still in college, but getting exposed yeah. to... Like what you were doing, if you're if you were a developer with a double E background, um, and you're having to deal with the you know digital communications and you know satellite comms and and ground terminal to uh, satellite payload turn you know um, communications, all of that stuff was was pretty fascinating. I stopped I stopped working at that level and I stopped using those languages because I went to build mostly web interfaces. I now find myself going back to Python. And refreshing, uh, like revisiting all of these math-heavy concepts because I'm going into AI pretty heavily, and I'm going into 
information management and knowledge base management and knowledge graph building. Uh, so now I'm going back to Python, but I'm, I'm happy that the world seems to have understood that JavaScript is just as a good uh, a tool as Python. There's a lot of open source software now being built around enabling ML slash AI slash LLM workloads to be done in JavaScript. And now with uh, Web GPU, it looks like we're getting a platform that we can use to deploy machine learning or AI uh, predictive modeling onto browsers, which is freaking exciting for me. Um, Bringing the horsepower yeah. closer and closer. So aside from you know, AI and all of that, you know, all of the sort of like lower level pieces of ML and everything else being written in Python. What other, what other events in, in your, in your journey here have now brought you back to this and, and of getting you closer into AI and why? Well, I've always had the entrepreneurship bug in, in my, like in my veins, in my brain. Uh, my grandparents on my dad's side started up at BNB in 94 and they pulled resources from the entire family to buy furniture and uh, equipment to repair their home. They had a big home. And they basically took care of my sister and me and my dad and mom for the longest time. My dad was uh, doing his master's. He did a master's in it. He did an MBA. My mom was an English teacher. It's like they didn't make a lot of money. Um, my grandparents basically carried us for almost the entirety of my, my childhood. And I grew up with that preference, right? So, uh, so much that I remember, I, I can't remember exactly when it was, but I know that I was a kid, like four or five, six years old. Uh, I, one day I discovered how to make paper planes. And this was so amazing to me. I was like, this is freaking awesome. People will love these. Dad, can you get me a stack of paper? I'm going to make a bunch of these and I bet I can sell each of them for a dollar. Like six-year-old me stuck out thinking there of building. Yeah. Out there hustling, man. Uh, that was my my own version of the lemonade stand. Yeah. So that's been with me for forever. But when I moved here, starting from scratch, I went to work first for a an insurance company. Uh, they did um, health, disability, uh, life policies and investment. Uh, I worked there for a year or two, learned a lot about data analytics that I hadn't been done, uh, hadn't been doing before, but it was mostly web, still .NET. And then I went to work for a company called NatAl Security Products that builds home surveillance equipment. And that was the first time that I got to go back to, hey, I'm an EE, I'm a double E, uh, this is video, IoT, mobile app, building consumer goods that for the first time in like three, four years, let me do engineering. Let me actually go back and do some of the hard stuff. Like IoT, peer-to-peer, not traversal. Uh, we're looking to do WebRTC. But at some point, I was like, this is all fine and dandy, but I actually want to build my own thing. So I started up the agency and a couple of years later, we built. We started building Chatashu. So the agency gave birth to Chatashu. Uh, so the agency does branding and it helps small businesses. And then Chatashu started out as tools that the agency could use itself. But then we said, okay, let's let's sell it to other agencies as well. So that's that's how we got to where we are today. Chatashu is marketing technology. That's that's what it is at its core. 
Very cool. And yeah, I mean, that's, 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 uh, that's quite the journey. Um, I want curiosity, like you'd come to the Valley, you'd seen that you'd seen a bunch of sort of the major tech hubs in the U S mm-hmm. prior to moving here. Did you choose Florida because of family? Um, or did you choose Florida proximity or did you have it? Did you that's have a, a choice? Question. Was it sort of, you know, was there a choice there? Yeah, there were plenty of choices. Uh, I chose Miami initially because I got a job offer here. Okay, I've had plenty of opportunity to move to other states. Like my sister lived in Ohio for a year and a half, and she would constantly try to get me to go there. The main reason that I chose not to, beyond kind of seeing where Miami was going, is and this is this is weird. This is very a very me thing. It's weather. Like Miami feels like it's in the middle of the Caribbean. And that's where I grew yeah. up. I grew up by the sea. Uh, it's it's a big part of my identity. Looking at large bodies of water gives me inner peace and helps me deal with stress and the founder life, which is trying. Yep. I've been I've been in a lot of states have been um, even a bit north, like in the Tampa Bay area, which is where my sister lives right now. Uh, it, it gets too cold for me. Like I, I like it hot, <laughs> I guess you could say. So the, the big decision point has been weather. Uh, then, you know, culture doesn't hurt, right? Culture uh, always helps. Like, culture helps. Yeah. I mean, weather, you know, definitely. I mean, I like heat. I can't say I necessarily like this, uh, the, the last summer's heat here in Texas. It's, that's been ridiculous. But, uh, you know, I, I understand the weather. I definitely get all of that. That makes a, a, a big difference and, and kind of gives you that overall happiness. But I also think, you know, the whole COVID lockdowns have proven again that or reinforced yep. that you can, you can build stuff anywhere in the world. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, if right. you've got the desire yeah. and you got the talent, and- you can go build. Yeah, and as early as 2017, 2018, some trickling of venture capital and big companies opening uh, spaces or offices or satellite offices in Miami started. Mostly Google, uh, Facebook had a big one here. Um, Microsoft has had a presence here for a long time. And South Florida, for the longest time, was a hub for electronics and consumer goods. We lost that because that manufacturer moved overseas. But I think there's a resurgence of of that type of industry here, mostly now on software. Uh, Miami has this interesting advantage, which is it's really close to both Latin America and Europe. It's definitely closer than than, uh, the the, the West Coast, for example. But it, it, it has become a hub for venture capital, for startups. A lot of venture capital has been moving here. And with that, a lot of attention has been uh, moving here. And then a lot of talent has been moving here. But also there's been work that's going on trying to get a pipeline of talent to be locally sourced that can provide the sort of talent that high-skill startups need. So there's still a long ways to go there, but we're way better off than than what Miami looked like in 2017. I mean, you know, beaches, tropical weather, and good food. I think you're, you know, that seems like a a very attractive reason to come there. 
Yeah, that's one of the reasons that transplants from Austin or the Valley or New York uh, often cite, which is, yes, it's not the Valley, it's not New York, or it's not Austin, it's not Colorado. There's still a lot that needs to be built, there's still a lot to be resolved, but the tendency is towards building that sort of ecosystem. And at the same time, I get to have a nice quality of life. Sign me up. So I've seen a lot. A lot of people have come over here. A lot of people have left after a year or so because they couldn't take the heat or the culture. They're not used to it. But a lot of people have stayed. That's so. good. I mean, I think you mentioned something important. Like that's quality of life. I know in my my twenties, I didn't even think about that. It was just like, just work, 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 keep working, work hard. But you know, you start to get a little older. You get into those mid thirties. You start to have family. You start to do all that sort of stuff. And it's like, hey, wait a second. You know, life is short. I want to have a quality one. Um, work is always going to be there. Uh, let's get to let's get to something else. Let's let's make sure we got. Yeah, especially. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, especially as a, as a startup yeah. founder, right? Um, the things we do are challenging. Uh, we spend a lot of time focused on building something out of nothing. Having a nice quality of life around that makes it easier to to stay focused, and and it kind of helps preserve mental health. So 100% with you there. So speaking of something to nothing, Chat HQ, let's talk about your infrastructure. What are you built on? What are you using? Chat HQ is today exclusively hosted on AWS. I've been using AWS for a long time. I I really like the experience. I know some people say that it's too complex. I I I find that out of the three big uh, clouds that I've tried, uh, GCP, Azure, and, and AWS, I like AWS the most. It's also the most mature of the three. So we are hosting an, on AWS. We use a combination of Postgres and MongoDB as our uh, data layer. All of our backend is built on Node.js with TypeScript. That's about to change because we're going into AI and just Python is where it's at right now. Hopefully, we're going to see a lot more AI ML being possible on top of Node.js or Bun or, or Dino in the future. Today, is still Python. So we're adding some Python to the mix. Uh, we're using GraphQL everywhere we can. We still have some REST, REST APIs because we have people who can consume GraphQL. And we're now integrating NATs. So we've been, we've been doing in-memory caching inside of our application. We're now migrating to use NATs for as much as possible. Very cool. And then what are you utilizing think, to yeah, so, manage? Ah, on, the, and on the front end, uh, React and Mojo UI. And then what are you, what are you using? I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I think we had a little, little get a little choppy here. Um, that happens, a little congestion. But as I say, what are you what are you utilizing to manage your infrastructure in terms of are you using Terraform? Are you oh, CDK? What do you what are you guys out there? That is that is a great question. We are definitely the odd one here. We're using Docker Compose. Okay. Uh, right. and we are using <laughs> yeah, Docker Compose, uh, single page applications hosted on CDNs on CloudFront, S3 okay. and CloudFront. A lot of our front end is deployed as either embedded widgets onto a website that we don't control, or it's deployed across the globe with a lot of emphasis in the initial load 
but also in speedy and flashy transitions from screens. Uh, we found that our audience cares a lot about that user experience. Uh, it's, there's, prob- there's now ways to do this with uh, Web Transitions API, but for the longest time, it was not possible to, e- to achieve the smooth trans- transition UX on multi-page applications. So we built on React, React single-page application. Uh, we started out using Webpack, and then we found Beat and migrated to Beat. And B just caught our build times and development uh, or development time or inner cycle by like 60, 70%. So we're super happy about it. Uh, we have a small team and a lot of them are in Latin America where there's not in, in places where they don't have a, a good internet connection. It's spotty. So optimizing for building offline and building asynchronously has been important for us. So Node.js, local deployments in their dev machines, and then just using GitHub for CI/CD. That that is our tech stack. We have kept it very simple. I've tried a couple of times to look into Kate's, uh, and I found it to be too complex for the things we're trying to do today. So we stuck around Docker Compose. Yeah, I mean, you you kind of, especially if you're running on containers. I mean, you kind of end up in that realm of, yep. of Docker Compose maybe to begin with, depending on what you're doing? So on the topic of Infra, um, I've, I've always tried to build, like my focus is on, on delivering user experiences. Uh, we have not raised venture capital till this day. And everything that I'm trying to do and all the architecture that I'm doing, I am doing it with two core constraints in mind. One is I need to control costs. I need to keep costs at a minimum. We're going for profitability instead of growth to start. So because we haven't raised money, we need to generate the revenue to uh, to cover expenses and then, and then some to reinvest in growth. So that means that I have avoided complexity as much as possible. If there's something that maybe has some more manual work on our end, but that gets the job done and helps us reduce cost, then I have made that choice. That, that's not going to be like that forever, of course, but we're still growing. We're still trying to find the right amount of, of prof, uh, product market, market fit, uh, and we're not there yet. So for those reasons, we're using Docker Swarm and we're using Pertainer as a UI to manage Docker Swarm. I looked at Rancher uh, for a while, but they stopped supporting Docker Swarm and they became exclusively a Kubernetes management UI. So I couldn't use it. I would have probably used uh, Rancher because I um, I don't know. It, it feels like it's, at least when I started using it, I haven't, I haven't seen it again. Uh, and Pertainer has improved a lot. Um, but it had a lot of features that Pertainer didn't have at the time. Um, so today... Docker Swarm, we are running, we have three clusters. We're running a bunch of um, database clusters ourselves. We also have some some uh, MongoDB clusters in, in Atlas, at least one. And we have a Aurora uh, Postgres cluster that runs some of our workloads. It also runs authentication. Uh, and that's it. The simplest stack as possible. So TypeScript, uh, the entire stack. Python now for AI. 
but yeah, it's it's always interesting because like you know we're venture backed and coming from Twilio, there was a you know a huge focus on operability. There's a huge focus on sort of that repeatability. That's just kind of in my core now. It's part of the muscle memory. And you know, as we started laying out the infrastructure and everything else like that, I wanted this, you know, I wanted this sort of you know declarative framework to utilize that I could utilize for repeatability and everything else like that in order to describe my infrastructure. And for us, we ended up going down the route of CDK uh, because I did not care so much about being platform agnostic. You could have chosen, oh, I could have gone Terraform, I could do anything else like that. Well, Terraform's just written on top of the Amazon APIs or the GCP APIs or anything else like that. And I've got to yeah. now deal with HCL. Uh, whereas at least in CDK, I'm just writing TypeScript and you right. know, it's using the same APIs and it gets transpiled down to CloudFormation and you know, all is good in the world. Mm-hmm. I got to say, the CDK was probably one of the best things that AWS has come up with uh, in, in recent years. Uh, I remember hand coding CloudFormation YAML by hand. Um, and when the CDK came out, I, I did use it before uh, when we had a, a bit more money to throw around. Yeah. Um, the CDK was a game changer for us back at, at the last company I used to work with. No, we're big, big fans. I mean, I, I too, in the beginning here, was writing in CloudFormation. And it's like, okay, I've had enough of this. Like, we've, we've got to find something better. And it was like, all right, CDK, let's go write that. I mean, write it in TypeScript. This is great. Um, you know, ended up choosing yep. TypeScript just because all of our APIs are in, in largely in TypeScript as well. Um, you know, if I think of my mm-hmm. two code bases, it's, it's uh, TypeScript and Go. And very soon to be sort of yeah. taking oh, okay. the same journey that you're going down now uh, will be a lot more Python as we start mm-hmm. to introduce functionality and features that are going to be backed in utilizing the LLMs uh, that obviously are, all of us can benefit from now. Right. So, yeah, that, that was uh, a question that I wanted to ask you is, there's no way that the microsecond response times that Propel gives us are just powered by uh, JavaScript. Like, that's not possible. So it's Go. Like, Go. the heavy data management is Go. Yeah, anything with anything that touches the data specifically around ingestion and around serving is going to be in Go, and then the the actual you know, column store those engines are you know those are probably written those are all C C plus plus, you know we we choose kind of a variety of them, and that's what that's what gives us the responsiveness. And then from like the ingestion standpoint, the efficiency is definitely we gain that by utilizing Go, um, and then the place where we keep the uh, you know the, the the TypeScript is is largely on that sort of that outer edge of the API um, where we're giving you that GraphQL API because of all the strong because of it being strongly typed. Okay, so let me ask you if if you had the choice of using whichever language you wanted and performance was not a concern, like let's assume this is not realistic, but let's assume that you could get the same performance out of any language, any programming language, based only on the developer experience, which one would you choose? I mean, the TypeScript TypeScript ecosystem is is pretty damn nice. Um, you know, yes, the the IDEs, the you know, sort of all of the components, the libraries, everything out there, I think lends itself to a very nice developer experience, and and more importantly, developer efficiency. 
Um, I, you know, we use WebStorm for our, for our, for our IDEs. Not everybody has to. They can also just use, uh, if they want to use VS Studio, they can do that too, which I use mm-hmm. for my Python when I'm doing Python. And okay. I, you know, I've, I've found, I've found at least that, that ecosystem to be probably one of the friendlier, friendlier out there in terms of usability and efficiency. I would agree. Yeah. And then I think the close second, I mean, I, I want to say, I want to say go or rust. Um, but that's, that's more going to be for, from a performance standpoint, when I start to think of go, that's was always for us was <clears throat> we need to be performant. I don't want to, I don't want a JVM. I don't want to deal with that. Um, I don't want the overhead of that. I want something that's going to compile down natively. Let's go with go. Let's be quick. And mm-hmm. there is a, a very good, obviously a very healthy ecosystem around that too, you know, spurned on by Google and, and others. Yeah. So go is, I've been playing with uh, a couple of code bases for uh, components that we use. Like we use traffic, for example, as a, as a ingress proxy. Uh, we now use NAS. Uh, I started playing with the Mattermost, uh, which is built in, in Go. Mm. I haven't quite had the pressure of going in and adopting the language, but it's definitely one that I, I would like to look more into uh, in the short term. Yeah, it's like my my co-founder, I mean, he'll pretty much write in anything, but his preference was his, was Java and, and definitely TypeScript. Um, here was was definitely TypeScript. He's like, I'm not going to write Java anymore. Um, and then we hired my my one of my other engineers. We brought on. She is she loves Go. Uh, she's like, all right, I'll write TypeScript if you make me, but I want to spend my time in Go. And then my engineer in uh, in Madrid is predominantly TypeScript, but now he's writing Go. Um, and then so like we're kind of like you know half and half, and I just kind of sit in between. And it's like, well, I'll write some stuff over here in Go if it's like our CLI. And then, you know, if I'm doing stuff specifically, like most of the stuff that I'm doing now is going to be on the infrastructure side. So that'll just be in TypeScript land and, and CDK stuff. But then now, of course, right. now, so of course, it, it definitely, <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. So it definitely is possible. Like you see, you see a roadmap for going, like being effective in TypeScript and yeah. learning Go and still being effective in Go. Yeah. That's, that's good to know. Yeah. So I, it's, tell been, me, it's been tell an easy transition. About, right. That's, that's good to know. So tell me about Python and what are you guys going to be doing in Python? I'm, I'm so glad that, that we're doing this today because I get, I get like a sneak peek, I guess. Yeah, definitely will be a sneak peek there. And, and I think, you know, part of what was, was pushing me like, oh, I want to be able to talk about this with you is I was reading your LinkedIn post uh, where you started talking yeah, information about information theory and, yeah, information theory yeah. and uh, I think you wanted to visualize entropy between the yeah. vector embeddings, if I remember correctly. We're so close enough. Yeah. This is this is exciting for me. So, like I said, I haven't, I have, I didn't have an excuse to go back and do uh, information theory or math and statistics because I didn't have a use for it for the longest time. But now AI and, and LLMs have given me an excuse to go back and revisit those topics. So, uh, like I mentioned the other day, I have a I have a Fourier transform. Uh, integral tattooed on on my arm. Yeah. It's like there's a few people, <laughs> there's a few people uh, from from engineering and math that have that I admire deeply because of the legacy they gave us. Fourier is one of them. Shannon is another one, right? 
So um, my idea was this. Okay, so we're taking content, uh, audio, text, uh, images, and then we're running it through a black box that is not a linear transform, but that is producing a vector space. It's producing vectors in a hidden vector space. Then depending on the embedding model that you're using, that vector space has more or less dimensions. Like some of them have 300 and, and change. OpenAI's embedding model, embeddings model has 1,568 or 1,536. So like a high dimensional space. Math and high dimensional spaces becomes really expensive really quickly. And OpenAI's ADA, ADA um, embeddings uh, model is the one that produces the highest dimensional spaces. Uh, vectors, I'm sorry. So I'm looking at the vectors that it's generating and I'm trying to understand this this underpinning concept of language model, uh, language embedding models for from language models where vectors in that vector space are expected to be close to each other mm-hmm. when the input data is semantically similar. So if I say, I would like to eat an apple or I would like to eat an orange, there's an expectation that to some extent, the vectors that the embeddings model is going to produce are going to be close together. And this is the basis for retrieval augmented generations. Like yeah. you, you take some, some data, like a knowledge base, some customer provided information, you calculate embeddings, you chunk it, Yep. And then you calculate embeddings for, for them. And then you can see, you can get new data being sent in that you haven't seen before, but you can calculate an embedding for that data and do either a cosine similarity uh, search on that vector space, on those vectors that you saved, um, or uh, like Euclidean distance, uh, if the vectors are normalized to have dimension one, then they're going to be equivalent. Right. So my thought is, okay, we are generating embeddings from customer knowledge bases. Uh, Some of it we build and we sell. Some of it is customers building on top of that. And then we're also using language models to generate questions and answers from uh, those knowledge base articles. Like for any given article, we'll go and generate 10 pairs of question and answer. And then we're doing similarity search, but because it's 1,500 dimensions and, and change, no database today can do that in linear time. The best you get are logarithmic search, but logarithmic search today uses approximate near, nearest neighbor search. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not actually doing the search on the entire space. It's doing an approximation of the search, which already is introducing uh, lossy compression. So my idea is, okay, if we're already doing lossy compression and that is the best that we can do, how about I do some other different type of lossy compression and I do feature selection based on where the entropy is because there's an expectation that if vectors are similar in that space, I should be able to quantify where the similarity happens in those dimensions and drop the dimensions that don't add significant amount of entropy. So that, that so like, don't have a 
Yeah. So I think I, I think I follow what you're saying. So like if you talked about bringing in three different types of, of data and then chunking those up and, you know, doing the, back, the embeddings and everything else like that. So you've got audio, video and text, basically. Yeah. And so of what I'm understanding correctly, anything that is I'm looking for text is going to be a high degree of similarity. They're low entropy. But between the other two, you're going to say, wait a second, these do not look like each other. I can just completely remove those from the search entirely. Is that sort of what you're trying to so, get to, is to increase the efficiency there? Right. So here's what the pipeline looks like. Uh, I compute an initial set of vectors. Yeah. I store them in the database. Then I use those embeddings to send them to an LLM to generate pairs of question and answer. And I save those as well. Okay. And then a end user is talking to an AI agent or an AI assistant and asking questions about a product. Yeah. Because we're in, in marketing and what we're doing is helping customers, agencies and the agency's customers convert traffic that goes to their website. There's an emphasis on answering questions and resolving objections that people have when they're making a consideration to purchase, right? So it's questions about, can you do X? Or I'm currently using this other product. Or will you do, how much will it cost me? Or when are you open? Or do you take, let's say in the medical space, do you take so-and-so insurance, right? So we're taking those questions, we're calculating embeddings, and then we're doing similarity search on that bank of vectors that we've pre-calculated. But that similarity search, the best that we can do today is an approximation that introduces error yeah. in the calculation. Because what it does is it clusters those topics, and then it finds a centroid, and then the input data okay. does not get compared to every vector. It gets compared to the centroid, and then it gets compared to the vectors around that centroid. So there's a possibility that you are skipping content that will be relevant to the question. So I don't instead think of doing I don't, that, I, was say, I don't think loading, there's a possibility. I think it's definitely happening. We're watching it happen now. So right. yeah, keep going. So yeah. yeah. But, um, so instead of doing that, what we are doing is because the number of vectors that we have that power this semantic search is not huge. We're talking about, I don't know, 450 uh, articles in a typical knowledge base uh, plus 10 questions and answers. We've got less than 20,000 records. We're loading all of that in memory, and we are running the actual uh, cosine similarity on every vector. Okay. That has, that has enabled us to get higher accuracy and produce a better and more helpful assistant. But it comes with a cost. So my thought is, okay, if most of the similarity can be explained in terms of fewer than those 500, uh, I'm sorry, 1,500 dimensions, then I can maybe not consider some of those dimensions and accelerate that search that I'm doing. Because I don't want to do a, a, a approximate near search. I want to do the actual, the real deal thing. You want to find, what, you find drop, the chunk you need, basically. Yeah, exactly. To improve that accuracy. Yeah. And that's where entropy comes in, right? Because if, let's say... Out of 1,500 dimensions, and I keep saying 1,500, there's a bit more, but 1,500. If out of Close 1,500 enough. dimensions, 500 dimensions would explain the similarity for a specific knowledge base with like 95% accuracy, 
that would that's a good trade-off yeah. for us for our specific use case. So that's what I'm trying to that was what I was trying to visualize is how do I get these vectors that are huge? It's not they're not easy to visualize. How do I visualize cross entropy? I also I didn't post about it, but I also ran some Fourier analysis treating vectors as a signal. And I was trying to see, hey, is there maybe I can use spectral analysis. If there's 90%, 95% of the energy is concentrated on a narrow band of discrete frequencies, then I can Fourier transform, I can use a low-pass filter and inverse Fourier transform, or I can do cosine transform, which then would concentrate the energy towards the lower frequencies, and I can reduce the dimensionality of the vector space, and that's going to accelerate uh, search. And improve so accuracy. That's, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a trade-off between I want to accelerate search and I want to retain a threshold of accuracy. I'm saying 95% because what I've seen OpenAI do with just basic search is like 87, 88, 89% accuracy or 89% similarity, yeah. right? So if I, can get to, if I can get to 95 or I can get to 87, say, but do it faster then it's a good trade-off. Yeah, and because is your customer going to accept 85 or 86%? Possibly not, depending on, depending on the level of hallucinations or the, the level of, in, yeah. you know, if there are things that are steering them completely wrong. And so I would say we're, uh, we're not as far along as where you're at. We're doing the same things. By the way, are you using a Llama Index for this or are you just you going kind yes. of? Yeah, okay, same here. I'm using Llama Index. Yeah, did you see the, they, they just posted about, uh, I think it was last week, towards the end of last week, a new research paper that just came out about fine tuning in conjunction with, with RAGS. Um, I'll send it to you after this, but we're starting to look at that, that be because, awesome. of course, the very first thing we did and so you'd asked earlier about what are we trying to do with some of these things? Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, as a, a uh, you know, GraphQL-based API, we have an SDL, uh, which I'm sure you've interacted with, right? And so there is yeah. your schema definition language for the entire surface of our API. Well, the entire surface mm-hmm. of API, I, I'm going to run out of context very, very quickly. I can't shove all that in, uh, you know, right. most likely to a context window and then, and then utilize that for prompting the LLM. So here comes LangChain. Or not LangChain, sorry. Here comes Llama Index. Let's read mm-hmm. that in. Let's vectorize it. Let's chunk it in, vectorize it, put it in an index, and then start yeah. asking questions. So, you know, we start asking those yeah, questions sorry. and it's like, okay, they got one of those. Okay, one of those, that's right. That's cool. So if you if you today, because it's only chained on, what, 21 model, tw- GPT-4 is on like 2021, right? And... Let's just say in, our, in that SDL, there's a bunch of, of enums that did not exist then and maybe didn't even know about Propel. If I ask mm-hmm. it a specific, give me the, the available values of this particular thing in the SDL and say it has to do with time dimensions, it will hallucinate those answers. It will absolutely flat out make right. them up and say, here you go. And you're like, no, that's not real. Now, if I chunk, if I take llama index, and I create those vectors, create the embeddings, ask that same question, I'm getting an, a very accurate response. That was the first test. I was like, wow, that's really cool. All right. Now the second test is let, let me actually have it write a GraphQL query 
that mm-hmm. I said, you know, use the Propel Data API schema that you have, answer the following, write a time series query using mm-hmm. this um, this metric name at this time with this time range and this granularity. Now, all of that information is in that SDL. And so yes. I'm like, okay, it should be able to use it. Well, we asked the question. It doesn't quite get it right. Oh. And we're like, okay, why is that? So then we, we, we throw it in a debug. And, and so I'm starting to pour through the debug output. And I can see all of how it's basically chunking everything up. It's, you know, tokenizing vector, you know, creating all the vector, uh, the, what is it, the, the vector embeddings, everything else like that. And I can see it all chunked up. I'm like, okay, it's doing that. That's great. Let's go look at what it actually sent over in that context window. And in this particular case, in the context window, it only had the very first chunk, the topmost portion of the SDL, and um, did not have anything associated with the questions that the type of data we were trying to retrieve. And so, like, it. okay, how did it make that choice? Because we like we've just started playing with that particular portion of this this week. We've been doing stuff with code generation, you know, before all of that and some other things. But we're like, hey, mm-hmm. we've got this SDL. How do we? Everything we're trying to do is how do we make this better? How do we make Propel better and more efficient for a customer to take their data, query that data, and build visualizations on top of it very quickly and easily? Right. With almost not having to write any code. And then how can we infer? Man, that would be so awesome. And I don't think we're that far. But then also, how can we infer? the types of questions you can ask of a data set that's brought into Propel and present mm-hmm. that to the end user as well. And so you right. as a customer, you bring your data to us. Now we have this rich set of information. We understand the data that you're trying to build analytics on. We should be able, the experts, should be able to come back mm-hmm. and say, hey, Serge, by the way, Here's all the metrics, the questions you can ask of this data. Here's 50 questions you can ask of this data. Yes. Here are 50 yes. metrics you could potentially produce off of this data. Oh, and by the way, here's how you would actually visualize that data. Here's some suggestions on how to do that. And then next up would be an, oh, here's the actual code to run that in your next JS app or whatever you choose. Right. And all of that is going to require us to inform the LLM of the pieces of code that we have today, those SDLs, the UI kit specifications, all of that sort of stuff that's not, it's obviously not trained upon. And now we have to figure out is when it does that retrieval, right? When it's got that cluster and it finds mm-hmm. that centroid, like you said, how is it choosing? Like we, that's the, that's the part we're now starting to get into is how do we ensure that it's choosing that chunk or sets of chunks that are going to best represent the question that's being asked in that prompt in order to satisfy the the, the result that we need right. to see with a high degree of accuracy. So here's a question, an idea, and oh, what's going on here? I've got to control my, my autofocus here. <laughs> uh, a question, an idea, and, uh, and a story. Okay. We definitely ran into this. Um, I haven't seen, but... Are you generating comments in the SDL that you generate from the metrics? There are comments in the SDL, yes. We do have comments in the SDL. The more, the more descriptive those comments are, the better it's going to be for you because you can split that SDL, mm-hmm. uh, not 
in the way that Lama Index by default will split it, which is a recursive character or by word, mm-hmm. but you can actually split it. Like think of domain-driven design yes. and, and aggregate roots, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. If you can split it in aggregate roots, then you have you can send the the. It's gonna be easier to find the specific segment of the SDL that you should use. So, um, you can probably leverage comments from the customer who is creating the metrics to help them tell you, hey, this is what these metrics represent and use that. Yeah, and the, the, the nice thing is, is because there is a, it's strongly typed and there's a strong definition of the metric types that we support, yeah. that should be relatively easy. And, it, and, it's, and it's, I'm, I'm glad to hear you saying that because that is the first thing that we've started to think about is, one, we want to understand is, given that raw SDL, how is it chunking it today and what's that behavior, which you just actually explained? Mm-hmm. And then two, how do we control the organization of that SDL to bring the right things together? So all of my queries yeah. are together, uh, but my queries also need to come along with the enums or the, you know, the, um, the static data types and the, the data types and everything yeah. else like that. So those things, okay, those always have to come together. But maybe these other things over here, like for instance, the admin API, you don't necessarily need that with these query types because they're completely separate and they don't really, yes, they're part of the same SDL, but they're two different areas of of domain functionality that don't need to come together. And so that was kind of where we were going to, I think that was where, that was largely what I was talking about with um, uh, Nico today and yeah, actually yesterday as well Mm -hmm. of like, hey, we've got to, we've got to figure out how to chunk this uh, appropriately and, and then kind of break it up and then stick it back in there. Right. Yeah. Um, and then here is the the story. Um, this bit us. Like we had that same problem. The solution that I gave it, which is what led me down the exploration of entropy and, and cross-correlation is we are letting our users create and edit content. We're calculating embeddings and generating question pairs, but we're putting all of that in a database. At inference time, we're not using a database to do the search. We're loading all of it in memory. And because it's MongoDB, we can use uh, a change stream so that whenever something happens in the database that creates or changes or deletes content, we can watch that change and update it in memory cache. And then by doing an in-memory cache, we can do a really fast cosine search in memory inside of the application boundary. So that helped us improve accuracy. If you do it in in Go, it's going to be even faster. We're we're doing it in Node.js. Okay. Yeah, we would... would, If we ended up doing today, it'd probably be in Python, to be honest with you. But if I... Pulled in one of my other engineers, specifically the one out of college, I'd be like, hey, we got to do this. She'd do it and she'd do it and go in a heartbeat. She wouldn't even think twice. It would just be like, no, I'm not doing that in Python. <laughs> not a chance. So, yeah. So we'll we'll we'll, we'll um, see this, where that goes. This is goes. how we're solving it. Yeah, this is how okay. we're solving it. I definitely I am convinced. At, I mean, you saw the the screenshots that I posted, right? For yeah. this specific knowledge base, the. The vectors that I have, which were around 600 and something, just, just the articles, with some chunking, some smart chunking by section, like I'm, I'm splitting articles that are longer 
and keeping each H2 um, as its own chunk, for example. Okay. So we ended up with 600 and something. Most of them, for most of them, there is very little signal in most dimensions. And then there's a few dimensions that have a lot of energy, right? So uh, amplitude, let's mm -hmm. say. When I ran it through... When I ran it through a cross-correlation, calculated some cross-entropy between vectors, I found that the information, the entropy, is clustered in some dimensions. I just got to explore what is the trade-off between dropping some dimensions and which dimensions I drop and the accuracy that I get at the output and where is the balance between performance and, um, and accuracy. Yeah. But I am convinced that it is possible to accelerate vector search by dropping uh, dimensions from entropy information, from cr cross correlation information. Uh, uh, you you've got to go join the uh, so the Lama Index guys have that Discord channel. Have you been on there at all? I've been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's. I mean, they're they're great. So there's there's a ton of info in there. I'm surprised. I'm surprised I haven't. Uh, uh, have you have you been in there sort of like conversing and like, hey, what about this? And and you know, the have you kind of walked them through the path you've taken? Yeah. I wonder what why would Jerry, the founder, go and create Lama Index instead of just joining Langchain? Like Langchain is massively successful and it I think it's been around for longer. I'm not sure. Well, I mean, I, I can I mean at least from a popularity standpoint, I heard about Langchain first. That doesn't mean shit, obviously. <laughs> <Right>. But <laughs> um, and then, but then, of course, I was like, "Well, I started looking at I started looking at both, and I'm like, okay, yes, I'm going to have to start chaining agents and doing all of that sort of stuff. Great, I understand that over there. But the one I wanted to solve sooner was utilizing RSDL and R mm -hmm. data. So I, I kind of gravitated towards Llama Index and started playing with yeah. that before actually going to going to Langchain, and so. You know why he sort of spun off on his own? Who knows? Maybe he just was able to get funding easy. I mean, that's a good question. Probably one to ask in the Discord. Right. I'm sure you yeah. answer it. I don't um, know. I do. I do I don't know. agree it's... that if what you're trying to do is retrieval augmented generation, like RAG, yeah. Llama Index yeah. is easier to start using, for sure, definitely. Yeah, I mean, his his example, like literally of five mm -hmm. lines, is is spot on. Like that was so easy to get up and running and. You know, I ended up pulling out the document they wanted me to use. I was like, "Now, fuck that! I'm going to put my my SDL in there and let's see." Because I want something that's real to me. Right. You know, it's like great. Hey, I could read the Paul Graham essay. That's fine. Sure. But I wanted something that's more that's more relevant, right? I'm like, let's put my stuff in sure. there. Sure. Yeah. And so then started playing with that. And I mean, I guess going back to the rags, are you using what they're providing out of the box? Like, where are you having to really do your customization? Okay. So. Versus just taking what they have, those those higher level abstractions. Uh, I started out with the higher level abstractions. Our content... Like we all do, yeah. right? Just, yeah. Our content team uh, yeah. builds content in Gitbook. That's where we have our okay. uh, knowledge base for the uh, for Chattis U as a product. That's where we have the knowledge base that we built for the CRM that we sold as a product for a long time. So the first thing that I did was I went to Llama Hub. I found a uh, scraping data source, like a data loader, um, and I modified it a bit. So it uses Puppeteer to load a website, and then it, it uses Puppeteer APIs to find the 
uh, the right places in the document to extract uh, the content. Gitbook is weird in that it doesn't load all of the data at once. Like the first, the first pass of that scraper is look at the TRIA context and come up with a list of, of pages or articles that you want to go find. And then for each of those, yeah. go and find like the H1 or like the data container, whatever article that you know that the content is, uh, content is in there. And in Gitbook, when you load it in Puppeteer, it does not load the entire tree of content. It only loads the first level of the tree of content. So I just modified their uh, their data loader to expand that tree of context, uh, that tree of content entirely, all the way to like I think we have six levels um, in our content. Okay. Um, then build build a playlist of pages that I need to scrape, and then go scrape it. So that was the first version of it. Then I found a better way to do it, which was I connected the Gitbook space to uh, a GitHub repo. And then I run a C- I, I wrote a little CLI in Node.js that clones the repo, checks out the, the appropriate branch, and then uses MD, um, MDXJS to load it. I ran it through a sanitization step because Gitbook adds some, some weird uh, stuff in there. Parse it and then write it as plain text to disk. And that's what we're training our index today on. But in the process, because I'm parsing the markdown, I actually have a, an AST for the content in the document. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm using to chunk documents at the right places so I don't cut stuff. Like I don't, I don't cut a paragraph in the middle. And that also helps with accuracy. In the middle so you don't miss so it. For you, That's if you're cool. doing something yeah. like that, you have an S, an um, an ASD of the SDL of the GraphQL SDL. I would yeah. treat it like you're building a federated graph, and kind of separate that SDL as if you were building a federated graph, where each uh, part in that federated graph is an aggregate root. Like if if you can make it like that, maybe yeah. you can split it at the metric level maybe you can split it at the data pool uh, level so the key is the chunking needs to be aware of the semantics in the context of the content you, yes. that you're that you're trying to describe and that's going to help with accuracy 100 percent guarantee yeah that we're gonna have to that we'll have to write ourselves i i think the like our knowledge base or all of our documentation is powered by docusource so i think mm-hmm. what you know, my next my next sort of journey will be to go turn that that web scraper that you just mentioned that I'll pull out of the Llama Hub and see what that does for me and how that starts to feed in. I mean, um, and chunk everything up. And you then, can use the one I built. You don't have to go and, and and reinvent it. You can take the one that I built and and customize it for you. Um, you're you're writing docu. Uh, you're using DocuSaros. That means you're you're using MDX, right? Like Markdown with uh, extensions. Yeah. I, I believe so, right? That's the DocuSource is the one from the Facebook guys. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, we've we've done some modifications of that and that's what building our site. So I could either get it from source, like similar to what you did, or I would be interested to see if the way that we're serving it mm. is slightly different than what you're seeing with Gitbooks. And if I turn, right. if I turn that crawler onto it, the, the existing crawler that you first tried, what are my results look like versus, hey, do I have to come back to you and say, hey, can I borrow, can I, can I borrow some code from you? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. I think I'm, I'm gonna find the. I'll find the the loader that I used 
and in Llama Hub, and I'll send it to you. DocuSaurus doesn't have that problem okay. that that Gitbook has, so you probably are going to be able to just use the stock one. But that's for the knowledge base, right? For the SDL, yeah, it's the semantics are different, yeah, so, and do, the way you chunk so, it, it has yeah. to be aware of it. But yeah, yeah. So that one, I'm going to have to spend some time on do some customizations <laughs> there, and, and then kind of go from there. Yeah, that's all right. I mean, you know, this stuff when it when it works. I mean, it's 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 truly amazing and time saving. Um, you know, we've got we've got sort of the poor man's prompting down today, where you know I'm like, hey, here's the here's the the sort of examples of building, uh, utilizing our UI kit time series. Here's a good example, bad example, whatever else like that. Some additional information, and I'm like, go create the Next.js React component. This needs to be able to. I need to be able to run this from the command line. I want a counter. I want a time series. Here's the name of the metrics, blah, 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 blah. Here's how you generate a JOT token. Right. You know, all of that sort of stuff. And it's at the point now where there are step-by-step directions Mm -hmm. that if you follow that, uh, when you run that, you know, NPM debug or run or whatever you want, it actually fucking works. Yeah. And that to me was like, oh shit, okay, this is where we need to obviously do more for our customers because our customers are coming to us, you know, slightly different than what they're coming to, well, probably a lot different than what they're coming to you for. I mean, our customers are like, hey, there's still a lot of heavy lifting of building that they have to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every time we're thinking about how do we make something better for our customers, more efficient for our customers is how fast they can, can they go from getting their data to propel to visualizing it in their application? Right. I I assume you've seen V0 from Brazil. Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) Hell yeah. Yes. Yeah, that is, I mean, come on, that's like, that's the, the, the nirvana is, or the, you know, the, the sort of like ultimate end game is you've done all that, you've done the things that, the manual things that you can't get away from, like connecting your data into Propel. Yeah. Um, hopefully at some point you don't have to, you, you can generate a metric yourself, but hopefully we can be smart enough to say, hey, right. here are the, here's, here's what we think are going to be the best, right? And we kind of try to be helpful there, but maybe not too helpful. Long story short, you've done all of that. Well, at that point, you should be able to take like a V0 like that, like just like Vercel, and like, hey, here's five different ways to visualize this or 10 different ways to visualize this. Oh, you want to theme it. You want to change the skin. You want to change the color. You can iterate through all of that stuff right there. And then boom, you just pop that out. I mean, I don't know if it'll be as slick as them where they got an NPM command to do it. I'd like to say we get there at some point, right. but that's, I mean, that's the ultimate, right? So now you've gotten to the point where you made it so simple for a company to build what they need to do from a customer-facing analytics or data analytics standpoint, it's, it's just, it just becomes a no-brainer. And they're kind of up and running. So another idea that I get there, um, kind of around this same workflow of, I have data, then I run it through a black box that understands the schema in that data and generates pieces of application, services, data access layer, maybe UI components. Uh, so like rapid application development, but powered by AI is this repo that I just sent you. Well, this is the, this is the docs. Uh, this repo called React Admin that is built on top of Mature mm-hmm. UI. And they have this yep. concept about, uh, concept uh, called data loader, I think, or data provider. They have a data provider that that can introspect a GraphQL query 
and auto-generate listing, editing, creating, uh, and viewing React components built uh, with Material UI. There's probably a way to, to take that same concept and use those same components that they are uh, producing, which are just basic Material UI that are connected components or connected to hooks to a data provider, and somehow hijack this process to generate graphics. I'm sorry, not graphics, uh, graphs and visualizations for yep. data from your SDL. So this is a bit I don't see why not. outside of the AI space. So I would probably do it with just introspection and basic generation. And then I would use AI to refine mm-hmm. it. I will go and tinker and I'll report back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That sounds cool. No, very much appreciate that. I was thinking like we've probably, I don't know, we're probably about like an hour and a half in yeah. now, which uh, time flies when you're uh, having fun talking tech, obviously. I think what we should do is you've got some pretty cool stuff you're working on right now um, in regards to performance, speed, and accuracy. You know, uh, when it comes to the computation of entropy and everything else, we should do a follow-up. I would love that. You know, we can uh, we can do a follow-up and see where, and see like maybe in a month's time, maybe a month and a half, see where we're at. and come back and say, okay, where we landed and what are the things we've learned um, and or has something evolved to make our lives easier so we don't have to do a lot of this stuff. Sure. I don't know. I would love that. And I am honored. I don't know if, if you've had anybody who's repeating an appearance in the podcast or if I'm going to be the first one. But if, if I am, I am honored, sir. Happy, happy to talk to you. Happy. Uh, I'm glad you invited me over. Absolutely. I think you would be, you would actually be the first non-founder to be a repeat. Because I have obviously like, I don't know if I bring, you know, actually, now I got to think about that. I've had, yeah, I think you've had Nico, I've had Mark, and Mark a couple of times. I've definitely had Mark a couple of times because we, yeah. So Nico and I talked about, obviously we did the founders, you know, why we built yeah. Propel. And then we did the, the, uh, the, the Snowflake Summit. We did a Databits Snowflake Summit recap. And then Mark and I talked about architecture. And then we did a full AMA mm-hmm. that we'd gotten from one of our customers about how we built like the like our infrastructure choices and why we built things the way we did. So, But you will be the first non-Propel uh, second-time guest. I'm equally honored. I'm equally honored that I get the repeat. <laughs> I'm happy. So, And I think it'd be yeah, awesome because now that. we can kind of see where our, our AI LLM uh, journey has evolved and how we've achieved the things that we want to do for our customers. And I think that'd be pretty fucking cool. Yeah. Also, in, in about a month time or a month and a half, whatever, however long it takes us, I'm going to have a lot more shiny stuff built with Propel that I can show people. Like, I'm, I'm happy to, sh- to see your faces every time, everywhere I can. Uh, but yeah. actually showing people, hey, awesome. look what I built with Propel. That's, that's even better. Well, I mean, there is there is no better reference than word of mouth, and uh, we definitely appreciate you talking about us uh, out there in your network and and on LinkedIn. We love it, and uh, I know Nico's looking forward to having you guys on yeah. uh, his live uh, stream uh, to talk about the problems you're solving with Propel and and how you're empowering your customers with data and the results they're getting from that. So, looking forward to that as well, Serge. Totally appreciate your time. Uh, Let you get back to building here, which is the fun stuff we get to do. But this was a great conversation and I really appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. 